And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith also is empty. Welcome this morning to this part of the service. I greet you in the name of Jesus. And I trust this morning that we all believe that Christ is risen, that my preaching is not empty, and that your faith is not empty. So grateful for that. You know, this morning I uh, so you know we've been we've been doing a series in the kingdom of God, and so I knew for a few weeks that I would be preaching today, and so I was trying to decide how how does this how does this does this how does this fit in? Does it you know how what am I going to share on? And I thought, well, I. I'll just preach a message on Easter, which I intend to do, but I believe that it fits in. It is, it is a part of the kingdom of God. And so um, I'm not sure. I, I had been in the last several weeks, months maybe, I've been thinking about how am I going to wrap up this series, and I somewhat concluded that I won't. Because, you see, for me personally, the kingdom of God is so foundational that everything that we know and do and, and see it, it, personally, I see it through the lenses of the kingdom of God. And so, um, in some ways, maybe the message today will be somewhat of a conclusion, although I'm sure that you will hear lots more about that. Well, this morning, I would be curious to know what, what uh, when we think of Easter, what do you think of? This morning, as we, you know, as we get together here earlier to commemorate the, um, Jesus rising from the tomb, and as we think of Easter in light of society around us, what do we think of? Chris, this is for you. <laughs> God still works in marvelous ways. It's amazing I had this on my... <laughs> uh, well, this morning, I hope that... Um, Chris, it's fine if you like the rabbits and the eggs, but I trust, and I trust that you do. Um, there's a lot more to Easter than that. Um, yeah, just just a little bit about the history of Easter as we think of, as, as I pondered for this message. Um, of course, one of the things that, that, one of the questions I had was, well, how does the Easter bunny and the Easter eggs and, and all that fit into Easter? Where do they come from? And obviously we don't really, you know, we, don't, we agree that they're not really a part of, of why we celebrate Easter. And yet, um, really, society has integrated them into, it, it, it's hard to separate the Easter bunny and the Easter egg from the risen Savior. In, in America today. 
And so what, uh, what happened? Well, I, one of the first things I did is I, I looked in my uh, encyclopedia of what the early church, what they believed on the issue. And, and interestingly, the actual Easter, the actual holiday that we observe really wasn't observed as a holiday, per se, in the early church. Now, they did commemorate the resurrection of Jesus. But it wasn't until some years later, several hundred years later, until after the Council of Nicaea that, that the Easter bunny and the Easter eggs, and, and some of this is it's a little hard to really pinpoint exactly what where, where this came in, but um, the Easter Bunny and the, and the eggs um, are a part of a pagan holiday that have to do with, with fertility and with, with new birth of spring. Um, and, and so maybe to illustrate how these have become so meshed in, in our culture today, if you Google Easter, one of the first things that comes up, it says Easter eggs, the Easter bunny, the dawn that arrives with resurrection of life, and the celebration of spring all serve to remind us of the cycle of rebirth and the need for renewal in our lives. In the history of Easter, Christian and pagan traditions are gracefully woven together. So that's how our society views these things, as it's, it's not a problem. It's not a problem to, to marry the two. <clears throat> um. The message this morning is not necessarily going to be against the Easter bunny or the eggs, but simply I'd like to look at, go back and, and look at what happened uh, in what, what, what takes place at Easter and why, do we, and why do we celebrate it and how does this affect us today? What, what, is, what is the meaning of the resurrected Christ for us today. We're going to look at some scripture to begin with. There's, I mentioned that the early church didn't necessarily practice or have a, a holiday per se for Easter, but there's lots of scripture pertaining to the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of Christ is central. It's a, it's a foundational doctrine of, the, of Christianity. And we're going to start by reading some of 1 Corinthians 15. And then we're also going to look at Romans, some in, in chapter 5 and 6. Starting out, 1 Corinthians, you can follow in your Bibles if you want. I do have it all on the PowerPoint here as well. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, 
which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received. So Paul's saying that I just simply preached what I received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. Now, most scholars would agree that Paul is quoting a creed, a, a very early creed, probably even earlier than the Apostles' Creed, simply a paragraph that puts in a nutshell the gospel here in verses 3 to, to four, 3 and 4. For I believe, for I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also receive, that Christ died, number one, he was buried, number two, and he rose again the third, on the third day, number three, and then fourth, that he was seen. There are witnesses that we still have today. He's telling the Corinthians, there are witnesses that you can go and ask aside from me. And they will all affirm that Christ indeed has, has risen. <clears throat> After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So here we get, in this last verse, we see what, what he is addressing here in this chapter. There were some among them that did not believe in the resurrection of the saints at the end of the age. So they were confessing that Jesus had risen from the dead, but denying that the saints would rise at the end of the age. And there's several factors that would play into this. The Corinthians would have been Gentiles, possibly affected by um, uh, Gnosticism, that would say that uh, all material things are, are evil, and so the, the, that would they would have a difficult time believing that your, your body, which is material, would, would rise again. So he's saying, he's simply asking the question, how do you say that Christ raised from the dead, and yet you say that the saints don't rise? And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses, of, false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. So he's saying 
If what you say is true, then I am a false prophet. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. So he's, he's telling them that, so if you say, as, if it is as you say, and there is no resurrection of the saints at the end of the age, then that also means that Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, you are still in your sins. All the saints before us that believed in faith on the coming Messiah, they are dead in their sins, and we are of all men most pitiable. We have no hope. I think we see in this passage one of the one of the strongest arguments in Scripture for the resurrection. And I'd like to just think about that for a little bit uh, about the argument for the resurrection. That is, that is one of the if if you're witnessing or if you if you have conversation with a a. Uh, atheist or someone that does not believe the idea that someone rose from the dead it, that's that's a, that's a big one however it is it is a very it is history aside from scripture will will show you that it is a very very that is the plausible argument for what happened with Jesus Christ <laughs> One of the arguments for that is simply that we know from Scripture, from from Mark, that Joseph of Arimathea took down the body, buried him in his tomb. Now, who was Joseph of Arimathea? Anyone? Who who was he? He was a rich man, but he was also the Sanhedrin. Yes. So, if you are fabricating a story... Why would you use a member of the Sanhedrin as the hero? The Sanhedrin crucified the man. You wouldn't use that. You would use someone of your own group, right? And Peter came and took the body down. Wouldn't that make a lot better story if you're fabricating a story? The second thing about that thing is that if you, if you use someone like that, in a story, anybody that is critical of the story is going to go figure out who this Joseph is. And, I mean, everybody knew who was a part of the Sanhedrin. And so, well, we went and checked it out, and there is no Joseph of Arimathea. So, poof, there's their story. Well, that didn't happen. I mean, this, this, this was, this builds a very, very solid case for the fact of a resurrection. The second thing is that there are a number of, of historians, secular historians, that mention Christianity and uh, historians in the first three, four hundred years. They all mention Christianity. And 
many of them negatively. However, none of them mention the empty tomb or the resurrection. Why do you think they don't mention it? Because if there was any credible account to the contrary, they would have they would have wrote about that, right? But everybody knew that the body had been dead on the cross, had come down from the cross, had been put in the tomb, and the tomb was empty. Now, many chose not to believe, but nobody argued with the facts. None of these early historians argued with the facts. They simply chose to ignore it. So, the resurrection is, is something that has taken place. It is, there is no question if you are open and honest to receive it. So the question is, what difference does it make for us today? If we cannot apply it to our lives today, then it is bare history. So that's what we want to look at. If it doesn't make any difference today, we might as well just celebrate the bunnies and the eggs. The point I would like to get here, to get at here before we move on looking at Romans, is that if there was a resurrection, there had to be a death. You cannot have a resurrection if there is no death. So, first verse I'd like to look at in Romans is chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, because all sin. So here's a question that I want to wrestle with this morning. If we are dead in our sins, because we have all sinned, then... then how how do we how do we die? What happens? Well, we'll come back to that. Let's go on in Romans. <clears throat> Jumping ahead, chapter five, verse eighteen. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. There it is again. All of us are condemned. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many were made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, here we're seeing the, the, the paradox, if you will, of through one man, sin came into the world. We are condemned in that sin. Through another man's 
obedience, verse 19, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. This is, I believe, one of the, the clearest, one of the most radical, possibly even dangerously radical, statements about grace that we find in, in the New Testament. So also by one man's obedience, it's not by my obedience, but by the obedience of Jesus Christ that we are made righteous. And Paul moves, Paul recognizes how dangerous, quote dangerous this is. And he moves right on in chapter 6 to address this. What? What shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Now here it is. Here's, here's the paradox. He just said back in chapter 5 that we are dead. We are condemned in our sin. But now he says we have died. So how, do, how, how does someone who is dead die? Verse 3, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? There it is again. Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. So he's... he's He's talking about us being, taking, being a part of his death on the cross and then also being a part of his resurrection. <clears throat> For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, if we are, if, if, if we are condemned, if we are Condemned because we are born unto Adam. What happens? How do we die here as Paul is talking about? Because as we can see from this scripture, we, in order to experience the resurrection power of Jesus, we first need to experience the death.
So, I'm somewhat of a visual guy, and I've used this here before, but we are born unto Adam, and remember how that in our sin, in, in our, as sons of Adam, we are all on the throne. We put ourselves in the center of what happens. And everything around us needs to, needs to, needs to fill us. So everybody that we are in contact with, we need to take something away from them in order to, to satisfy that emptiness inside of myself. This takes place in the kingdom of darkness. This is while you are condemned, separated from God. This is where you are dead unto Christ, but you're alive unto yourself. You're, 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 you're feeding yourself. Everything that you do in this stage is, you may not think about it, but subconsciously it is, it is feeding yourself. That big eye. So, what needs to happen is the big eye needs to go. The crucifixion that we experience is crucifying that eye. And when we consider that, there really are only, there are only two choices that we need to make. But, but the, the point here is we need to make a choice. If we don't make a choice, by default, we stay in the kingdom of darkness. That's where, that's where we're born into. <clears throat> Here's where I'd like to maybe come back a little bit with this whole thing of how we celebrate Easter is that there, you, you cannot have it all. It's, it's impossible to have it all. You cannot live unto yourself and also experience eternal life, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. In the same way, we have, to, we have to consciously think about how we celebrate Easter. I believe how Americans celebrate Easter is an attempt to have it all. It's an attempt to say, I can be Christian, and I can do, I can, I can accept, I can profess Jesus, but I can also... I can also do this. In fact, I will say instead of, of the Easter Bunny being um, representing some pagan god, I will now just simply say he represents fertility of, of the, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Or rather, the eggs are sometimes used to, to typify or to, uh, 
illustrate Jesus coming from the tomb. So instead of saying those things are a part of a pagan practice, I will just simply say that they are now, they represent, they represent Christianity. And so we'll have both. But we cannot have everything. It's impossible. Just for example, this morning, I didn't need as many cinnamon rolls as I wanted because you can't do that and stay fit. Uh, Amen. So there's a whole host of things in life that you cannot have at all. You can't have you, you can't have a, a Christian home and a good relationship with your wife if if you are not faithful and you say no to some other things. Right. Impossible. And yet, don't we see that in our culture over and over again and again that we can have it all? We can <coughs> be in debt up to our ears and have all the nice things without any consequences. So, <clears throat> I would simply like for us to, with, with this model here, simply to, to, to visualize and to think that there has to be a choice. We cannot have it all. You will either have the pleasures of sin for a season and be a part of the kingdom of darkness, or you will choose to get that eye off the throne and experience the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. It is to the degree that we crucify that big eye that we will experience the resurrection power that comes from knowing Jesus Christ. A scripture we could look at that. Keith mentioned this a little bit last Sunday is Luke chapter 14. Jesus talks about counting the cost. Keith did an excellent job of explaining how that Jesus was the was the ultimate example of someone who had counted the cost. Jesus knew what it was going to take for him to come down to earth and to, to redeem man. Jesus presents that in a way that it is a challenge for us to to also count the cost of following him. If we are going to follow him, there, we, there is a cost. The cost at, at the root level is the eye comes off the throne. like to go back <coughs> forgot this this if we choose if we choose to follow Christ <clears throat> this is a model that represents how my life looks if I am connected to Jesus Christ the Trinity the triune Godhead is a source of love and power in and of itself it is a creator I am not a creator I cannot create <coughs> love so, if I am connected to this creator God who fills me with his 
power and his love, I am now enabled to, to give love. If this is representing me, I am receiving from the Creator God. I can now give to my brothers horizontally this way and receive from him. But the really neat thing is, I can also give out here without expecting back. I can give to someone, I can build relationship with someone, I can be the initiator in a relationship without expecting something back. That is ultimately the, the, the power of Jesus Christ. I'd like to move back to our scripture in 1 Corinthians. <clears throat> read a few more verses here and then I'll leave you a few thoughts and we'll close but, but now Christ is risen from the dead so now Paul's back he's saying he, he had been making the argument playing along with them that if Christ that if it is as you say and the dead don't rise then Christ isn't risen but now he's saying but now if Christ is risen from the dead and he's become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for since by man came death by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. For each one in his own order, <clears throat> Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. This is at the end of the age. Jesus gives back the kingdom to God the Father. Paul goes on to say, For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is expected. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, speaking of God the Father, who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So Paul is saying at the end of the age, when all things have been put in, uh, under power, the last thing will be death. And death will no longer have any hold on the saints, and they will rise, and Christ will give it all back to God the Father, and be subject to God the Father. This will be, this will be the culmination of the kingdom of God. I'd like to leave you with three things. First one, I would simply like for us to choose death with Christ in order to experience life with Christ. Remember, it is impossible to experience resurrection without death. If we want to experience the power of Jesus Christ in this life, if we want to experience the resurrection at the end of the age, we need to get that I needs to come off the throne. We need to crucify it and be subject unto Jesus Christ.
Second thing is, I'd simply like for us to recognize the cost of following Jesus. I'd like for us to recognize we cannot, it is impossible, we cannot have it all. You cannot eat too many donuts and stay fit. And then I would like for us simply to experience the final resurrection, whether that comes before we or whether that comes in a thousand years from now, I want us to be a part of that final, that culmination of the kingdom of God. Jesus ushered in the kingdom of God. We are a part of that today. We are a part of that now. But it has not yet all been revealed. We don't know yet exactly what it will look like at the end of the age. pray and then Chamberlain has you to close. <clears throat> Father God, we are so grateful that you have loved us. Lord, we are we are in awe, Father, of how you have you have defeated death. Father, you have you have loved us. You have desired a relationship with us. You have the power to do that, to present that to us. Father, this morning, I just pray that each one here would hear your call, that each one here would, would come to you, that each of us could crucify the I, that we could, because of that crucifixion, also experience the power of your resurrection, Father. Father, I pray that you would bless us as we leave here. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.